So we're beginning this week with the same passage of Scripture that we ended with last week. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, or money. Now, acknowledging the link between last week's passage and this week's passage is important because it shows that these parables are part of a larger arc. There's a connection between today's parable and the parable of the dishonest or shrewd manager that we looked at last week, and even the parable of the prodigal son that we'll look at later. It's, there is a connection between what Jesus is saying here about wealth and the cost of discipleship. You've heard me say before that Jesus talked about money more than anything else except for the kingdom of God. Do you think there might be a reason for that? Yes, but I wonder if we're willing to let his reasons affect us. Many of us would rather not be around the church when money is talked about in the church, which begs the question, if Jesus spent a large portion of his teaching ministry talking about how we should use our money and how our money often uses us, would we want to be around Jesus when he was teaching? That question may be the only question, the only message that many of us need to hear today because it may prompt all of the wrestling and restlessness that most of us can handle. So it may be enough, but we're going to press on because Jesus pressed on. He'd been talking about wealth, and some people were starting to get annoyed and uncomfortable, namely the Pharisees. Notice what happened after Jesus concluded this series of parables with his words about no one being able to serve both God and money. Luke says the Pharisees sneered. The Pharisees mocked him. The Pharisees started making fun of him. Look at the passage. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear for the, than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. And all of this is important because this both prompted the parable and gives us a key to help unlock the meaning of the parable as well. See, the reason they were sneering was because of what they believed about God and money. They had a theology about God and money that Luke has already spent a good portion of this gospel trying to dismantle. And the theology was this. If you have, you are blessed. If you do not have, you are cursed. If you have, you are blessed. And if you do not have money or wealth, then you are cursed. And this is a theology that not only ran rampant in those days, it still runs rampant in these days. That if we have, we are hashtag blessed. If we do not have, 
then we're not. And let's be clear about this. Don't miss this. This is a theology that can be supported and backed up by Scripture. But it is not a biblical theology. This is a theology that can be supported and backed up by Scripture, but it is not a biblical theology. And I hope, I hope that makes sense because this is very important. Because there are many theologies out there, many ideas about God and how God works that can be backed up with Scripture, can be backed up with many Scriptures or several Scriptures. We can back up almost anything with Scripture, right? If we try. Slavery has been backed up by Scripture. Racial cleansing has been backed up by Scripture. White supremacy has been backed up by Scripture. There are lots of things that can be backed up by Scripture, but then when considered in the whole light of Scripture, are not biblical. And this is not something that I'm laying out to sort of set myself up to say that everything comes out of my mouth is biblical. I know it's not. I'm quite certain it's not. In fact, uh, what I've become more and more certain of over time, only more certain of, is that there's still a good bit more that I have to learn. And that's true for all of us. There are things that we all will continue to have to learn and not get right and won't know if we were right or not until we see God face to face. It's true for us just as it is true Just as it is true that just because you hear something that is backed up with Scripture does not mean it is biblical. And that seems to be the case with what these Pharisees believe about money. At the beginning of Luke's Gospel, Jesus' mother Mary proclaimed this, God has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Then at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he unrolled the Isaiah scroll and proclaimed that He had been sent to preach good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And then throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus proceeds to do exactly that. In other words, the notion that wealth is a sign that someone is blessed because of their righteousness and poverty is a sign that someone is cursed because of their depravity is something that Jesus is intensely trying to flip on its head. That's exactly what he's doing with this parable. Notice how Jesus characterizes the two characters in the parable. There was a rich man clothed in fine purple linen, which means... He was really, really rich. Purple was an incredibly expensive dye only for the wealthy to wear. Jesus says the rich man lived in luxury every single day of his life behind the gate of his gated community. And according to the theology of prosperity, get this, the rich man was to be revered and respected because he was obviously blessed by God. Then, just outside of the city gate, there was a poor man, actually the community gate where the house was, there was a poor man named Lazarus. And we should note right here that this is the only time in all the parables of Jesus that (laughs) anyone is given a proper name. 
That's significant. That's significant here because normally the poor are nameless. The woman who shakes her cup outside of Barnes and Noble on the plaza, the veteran who sleeps on a Westport street, the people who visit Love, Inc. or Inasmuch and ask for help, the man who stays huddled up outside that gated community with dogs licking his wounds, usually they are all nameless. But not this time. Not this time. No, this time the poor man gets a name. Lazarus. This time the poor man gets a name. And did you notice? The rich man does not. Tradition has actually given this man a name. The man is named Dives in some translations because of the way the Latin text translated rich man. But that's just tradition. That's not what's in the text. This man has no name. And that's not by accident. The intent, then, is not to say that this wealthy man does not matter to God. He certainly does. All people matter to God. And that is actually the point here. No one listening to this parable would have missed the fact that the man outside of the gate getting his sores licked by a dog had a name. That was significant. Because this man wasn't just poor. This man was plagued. He was obviously sick in a way that would have rendered him unclean. And then he had this, these dogs licking on him in a way that would have made him more unclean. These weren't pets. They were dirty strays like Lazarus. There's all kinds of irony here. Because here in this moment where Lazarus can't eat, his unclean body is feeding the dogs. These dogs who are supposedly unclean themselves, and yet their saliva is probably comforting Lazarus. The saliva of dogs actually has healing properties. And all this is happening right there, right outside of the gate, right up in this rich man's space, right outside of his home, and he never seems to see it. There is a chasm. There is a chasm between these two men in life that seems to be just as wide as the chasm between them in death. What are we supposed to make of this? What is it that we're supposed to learn from this here? Well, at the end of the day, I think we're supposed to learn to see. To see clearly. To, to learn to strive to see as God sees. To strive to see the world and others in the world as God sees. And how is Jesus proposing that we begin to do that? By challenging our assumptions about and our relationship to our stuff. Our money. Our wealth. Now, we might be quick to argue this morning that we don't see the world and our wealth like these Pharisees do, and their theology is not our theology. That's not our theology. We don't have that problem, but don't we? Don't we? Keep that question in front of you as you consider one of the most important elements in this story. 
invisibility. Why didn't the rich man see Lazarus in life the way he saw him in death? And even more, why don't we? What is it that makes the poor and the humanity and needs of so many others all around us so hard for us to actually see? What is it? Well, like Jesus, Berkeley psychologist Paul Fifth says it is our money. Dr. Fifth has done numerous studies, and I'm going to mention some of them, trying to understand how our wealth affects us, and what he's found is incredibly fascinating, I think. You've probably heard of one of the experiments he concocted to see if people with more money were driving less crazy or more crazy than people with less money. I mean, how do you do that? Well, he positioned coders at a number of intersections in California to see if rich drivers or people driving Bentleys and Mercedes or vehicles like that were more or less likely to obey traffic laws than people who seem to be poor. What they found was this that 50% of the most expensive vehicles broke the law and that none of the lesser priced vehicles did. That may not be enough for you, so let's keep going. In another experiment, he gathered 100 pairs of strangers at UC Berkeley and invited them to play Monopoly. Anybody like to play Monopoly? It can be a really long game, right? So they, did it, they adjusted the rules a little bit, though. With the flip of a coin at the beginning of the game, it was randomly decided that one player would be rich and another player would be poor. So uh, some of the players got twice as much money as others and twice as many turns. And then just to stick it to the poor players a little bit more, the rich players got to use the Rolls Royce and the poor players had to use the shoe or the thimble or something like that. That's pretty demoralizing. Well, here's what they found. Through the game, what they found was that the rich players would (laughs) bang their pieces as they moved while they were talking smack to the other players. Right? Then at the end of the game, he would ask the players to respond, and without a doubt, the people who had more money, the rich players, would talk about why they'd won this rigged game, this rigged game of Monopoly. I won, someone said, because I know how to play this game. I won because I've played it before. And they talk about the properties they bought and the significant moves they made, and a few people talked about some of their lucky rolls, but almost no one talked about that lucky roll of the dice at the beginning of the game that put them in that position in the first place. Another study, they put people in a room with a candy jar and told them the jar of candy was for children in a nearby development lab, okay? Then they left them alone to see who would take the candy when no one was looking. Participants who felt rich took two times as much candy as the participants who felt poor. In another study, let's keep going. Participants were given $10 and told they could keep 10 for themselves or they could share a portion of it 
with strangers if they wanted to. Individuals who made $25,000 a year or less gave 44% more to strangers than did the individuals who made $150,000 to $250,000 a year. And this is a trend we're seeing in other forms of research. Lower income households give a higher proportion of their income to charity than higher income households. This is, this is just true. In hundreds of different studies, Dr. Fifth found is that a person's level of wealth, as it increases, their feelings of empathy and compassion go down, and their feelings of entitlement, deservedness, and their ideology of self-centeredness goes up. In other words, why do we struggle to see? Because somehow our money gets in our eyes. Because somehow our wealth, our mammon, our stuff gets in the eyes of our hearts and affects our vision of the world in ways that most of us can't even measure. And it doesn't just impact our ability to empathize with the poor, it impacts everything. And that's the larger point here. Notice again, I'm going to reread it, how Jesus opens up the parable. We're going to draw a couple of things out of it. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value is highly detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. So, just simply put, Jesus is drawing a connection in this parable between their ability to see the poor clearly and their ability to see themselves clearly. Jesus is drawing a connection in this parable between their ability to see the poor clearly and their ability to see God and God's law and God's prophets clearly. Or to put it another way, if you are not seeing the poor as they are, real people with real names and real lives, And if you are not serving the poor where they are, if you are not seeing and serving the poor well, then you are not seeing and serving God well either. And all of this, your relationship with the poor and with God is being affected by your relationship with your mammon, your stuff. Paul Fifth conducted another experiment that I found quite interesting. Maybe you will too. It was related to the experiment that he conducted to see who would help a stranger in need. In this experiment, before he did the whole thing, he showed everyone in the room a brief video on child poverty. And then he proceeded to see who would help the strangers. And after watching the video, 
The rich persons in the room were just as interested in helping a stranger as someone who was poor, suggesting that we are all malleable. That we can all do things to open up our minds and our hearts more widely to God and others. In the afterlife, as the rich man looks across the chasm at Lazarus, begging Abraham for some relief, Abraham says that for some reason crossing this chasm is now impossible. So the man then asks, begs him to send someone to his five brothers to warn them so that they may not also enter this place of torment. But they have Moses and the law and the prophets, Abraham says. Yes, but you know, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Would they? Would they really? No, Abraham seemed to think. Even if someone rose from the dead, they still wouldn't learn to see. Which is interesting. It makes me wonder, will we? Holy God, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and our minds wider so that we can see the people that are all around us as they are, for who they are and who you have made them to be. Please help us to be more receptive to them and how you would have us to be present in all of their lives. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.